Welcome again to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue to work our way through God's Word. Now, if you're looking for a church home, a place that you can connect with other believers and serve together and focus your attention on our God, who is our great King and Savior, we invite you to join us at Calvary. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and you can find out more information at calvaryfayetteville.com. You can email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com, or you can even call us at 479-442-4634. Now, in today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is continuing our series on the church with a message entitled The Church, People of Faith, Part 6, as we look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 40. Let's listen together. Well, we need to take a minute or two to kind of take stock of where we are. In our study uh, entitled, our theme entitled, The Church of Christ, and I realize that maybe is a little bit confusing to you because there is a denomination uh, of congregations called the Church of Christ, and we uh, are not confusing our theme with a denomination, but rather the Church of Christ dealing with God's people throughout the ages. Now, on week number one of this study, about six, seven weeks ago, we focused on the who. Who is the church? We discovered that the Lord's church is made up of all of God's people, beginning with Adam, all the way up until and through today. That this church has been manifested initially in Scripture, in the book of Genesis, as a couple, Adam and Eve, then as a growing family that grew into uh, a very large family of probably some two and a half or three million people. And at Mount Sinai, under the leadership of Moses, uh, as he talked directly with God, was constituted as a nation of people. And God not only brought them together with his laws and his commands, uh, but also gave them a homeland. Uh, which is uh, the land of Canaan. And so for a number of years, several hundred years, these people of God existed as a nation of people. But as we know, both in that family and in that nation, there was a mixture of those who were truly God's people and those who were not. Those who were true Israel by faith, and those who totally missed what it meant to be the people of God. And so Jesus comes along to be the perfect servant, to be a perfect Savior, and to initiate a new covenant, a covenant of grace, of grace, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And then we have, after his ascension back to heaven, we began to see the church looking more like what we know it today. But even today, among those who claim to be a part of Christ's church, understand in any given congregation, it is very likely that there are those 
who do not truly know the Lord as Savior. And so we've been emphasizing over the last four or five weeks, and we'll complete this chapter today, that the true people of God, whether you see them as a family, as a nation, or as churches as we know it, the true people of God are people of faith. That faith is the dividing line between those that truly belong to God and those who do not. So we've been deep, knee deep, chin deep, maybe, you know, nose deep into the book of Hebrews chapter 11, walking through it. And here is the outline that we've been following, though maybe you didn't see it exactly this way because we've not emphasized it that strongly. We began, number one, with an explanation of faith. That's the first three verses of this chapter. Then we've been for about four or five weeks in point number two, some examples of faith. And we began to go through these names. Abel, a man who worshipped. Enoch showed us that faith walks. Noah showed us that faith works. Abraham shows us that faith waits. And last week, looking at Moses, a man who had to make hard choices. But Moses showed us that faith wins. So we come to point number three today, and this will be our final message, Lord willing, in Hebrews chapter 11 for a while, and it is the exaltation of faith, verses 32 through 40. The exaltation of faith, not the exaltation, pay attention to the spelling, pay attention to the words. It's not exaltation, not the exalting of faith. Although faith is necessary and faith is absolutely required if we are to be God's people, we are not exalting faith. Exaltation means to exalt, to adore, to lift up, to praise, to worship. Certainly we want to worship and adore Christ, but we want to uh, notice that the exaltation of faith. We don't worship faith. Faith save. Only Christ saves through faith. Exaltation means to triumph. It means to experience victory and the resulting rejoicing and celebration of that triumph. So today's message, verses 32 through 40, has to do with the exaltation, the triumph of faith. Let's follow along as I read, beginning in verse 32. What shall I more say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. 
Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Three questions arise from this passage. Well, we could ask others, but I want to ask and draw your attention to three in particular. Number one, why in the world are some of these names mentioned? Amen, Amy? Because she's already asked me about that a few weeks ago. Verse 32, when it talks about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, there are some ne'er-do-wells in that list. We understand why Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jacob, Isaac. We understand why those guys are mentioned. But why these? And why some of the ones that we've even already mentioned, like Rahab? Why in the world do these? And really a resulting question that goes along with that, a sister question. Not just why are these names mentioned, But why are some others left out? Some names that you and I would put on our list. These in verse 32 all failed in some pretty spectacular ways. Gideon. When you find him entering the pages of Scripture, he was timid. He was insecure. He saw himself as a nobody with nothing good to offer. Now we see his faith in action as he fights and defeats the Midianites, an army much greater in number than the men he had on his side. But if you continue on and read the rest of Gideon's story, he ends up an idolater towards the end of his life. So he begins, timid, insecure, ends up in idolatry. What about Barack? And that's not Obama. You remember there was a judge by the name of Deborah. And she gave Barack a command to go and fight against the Lord's enemies. Do you remember his response? He said, I'll only go if you go with me. And if you don't go with me, I won't go. That doesn't sound very much like a valiant man of faith, does it? I could say something really snooty like, what real man needs a woman to go with him into battle? 
And then I thought about myself, and I realized that I do, and thank God I have one. (laughs) What about Samson? He was profane. He was lustful. He was a thug in many many ways of looking at his life. He had a thing for foreign women. He disrespected his mom and dad, and yet God lists him as a man of faith. And Jephthah, what can we say about Jephthah? He was the son of a prostitute. God raised him up to fight against the enemies of the Lord's people, and he experienced a victory there. But he was a man who made a rash vow, and that rash vow cost him the life of his young virgin daughter. It was bad enough that he made the rash vow. It was even worse that he kept it. If anything, he should have gone back on his vow and let God kill him rather than his young daughter have to pay the price for his rashness. Now David, he is a man after God's own heart, right? We have all the many psalms that he wrote and and David truly was the hero of the faith. But also remember that he was a rapist and he was a murderer as well. Samuel, the last of the judges, a priest as well, and the first of a long line of faithful prophets. Samuel did a great work for God, but he was a total failure as a father. He lost his sons. They did not love God or respect God. So why in heaven's name did God list all of these men? Why didn't instead he mention Job or Elijah or Elisha or Daniel or Shadrach or Meshach or Abednego? Why did he not mention Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat, Josiah? Why did he not mention Deborah? Why did he not mention Ruth or Hannah or Esther? And the list could go on and on and on. Well, let me say this about this chapter. Now, don't mishear me. God's Word, as we have it, is God's complete revelation for us. If anybody comes along and adds two words to this book, or if they take words away, the Bible pronounces a curse upon them. Any so-called church that provides other books alongside this one and say they are just as important is a church that is a cult, not a true church of Christ. This is God's complete word. But even this book says that these are just a few of the things that Jesus said and did. Just a few of the events of of Christian history. That there could be many other things recorded for us, but this is enough for us. So that's what I believe about the Word. So in that context, let me say this about Hebrews 11. This is an ongoing chapter. It is a book. 
It is a chapter that though we don't have the names here, that gives light to many other men and women of faith. It is a chapter that is still being written today of men and women living today who are faithful that if God were to write another, an epilogue, or if God were to write volume two, many other names could be added, maybe yours. Because we stand in this long line of faithful men and women making our way towards our heavenly home. So with that said, let me say, this is not an exhaustive list. These are not the only faithful people. Uh, these are not uh, the only names that could have been mentioned. In fact, the writer of Hebrews begins verse 32 with the words, and what more shall I say? It's almost as though, he's kind of like the preacher towards the latter part of the sermon that says, I must hurry on and finish this. And then he goes 30 more minutes, right? He's saying, what shall I more say? Let me, let me begin to wrap this up. That's what the, uh, the writer here is saying. But even at that, these are spirit-given words. Amen? Amen? But notice this, and I believe it is a word of encouragement for you and for me. This is why I'm glad that Jephthah is listed here, Amy. Because if God had left this list to people like Abraham and Moses and, and Isaac and Jacob and, and people like that, I would have never felt like it was possible for me, or for that matter, even you, to even receive any commendation for our faith any approval from God. And that's what this chapter is saying repeatedly. These gained approval by their faith. God included some people whose lives didn't look so good. Some people whose lives did not seem to exemplify all that it meant to be a hero of the faith. God mentioned some people that were just as fallen and just, had just as many shortcomings, if not more, than you and me. And God still saw their faith and commended it. And God gave them approval. And if there is any hope for these ne'er-do-wells to be included in God's book, and they are, then friend, there's hope for you and me also. Does that make any kind of sense? Well, good, because now we can go on to question number two. Question number one, why in the world did God include these names? Number two, what do their stories teach us? What do their stories teach us? And I see three things in these verses. First of all, they show us what faith can accomplish. What faith can accomplish. Verse 33. These people, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, 
quench the power of fire. It's obvious he's talking here about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. That happened during the ministry of Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament. You see what their faith accomplished. Great victory, victories. Verses 33 through 35, first part of 35, these are the Sunday school stories. Okay? These are the children's church stories. These are the stories we pull out and we talk about God parting the Red Sea for these people or parting the Jordan River for these people. These are the stories we give to our kids about Daniel, about the, the three Hebrew children. These are the stories we like to put before them because these children learn these stories. They see how big and how God uh, is able to do things that we cannot even imagine. They show us what faith can accomplish. But God was quick to also say, they show us what faith can endure. Because it is just as great a work of God to help people endure great hardship as it is to give them great victories. Beginning in verse 35, the second part, some were tortured, refusing, now notice, refusing to accept release. They could have been released, but they chose not to and chose torture so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. That does not mean they hung out at the tailgate too long after the game. It means they were stoned. Stoned to death with rocks. They were sawn in two. You know who that is a reference to? Church historians tell us the prophet Isaiah. And not sawn in two like this but hung up by the ankles and sawn into lengthwise. That's not a good Sunday school story, is it? That's not what we sing about in children's church, is it? I don't know of anybody that's given us any kind of good songs to sing like that. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. They were destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. It is as though God had forsaken them. But by God's providence, that was the road they were given to walk in order to show what faith can do. Now, folks, listen to me. Don't be so simple in your faith and in your religion. Don't be so shallow as to measure if God is blessing only by the good things that happen in life. The same way that there are great victories 
for some. There's great suffering for others. And to endure suffering, to live destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, if that's God's providence and if that's God's calling, understand that to endure that is as great a testimony of faith, probably greater than seeing the sick healed, than seeing the dead raised up, than seeing the waters parted. And notice how the writer, inspired of the Spirit, sticks in about six or seven words in his description here by saying to these people about them who were destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world is not worthy. The world is not worthy of those who will suffer for Christ's sake. They wandered about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. I don't know everybody's case here, but I presume everybody today will leave church, go experience a good meal, go home to a comfortable home, apartment, dorm room, maybe watch a little Sunday afternoon football, or maybe just enough golf to put you to sleep. If you want to know why I referenced that, just ask me after church. And we'll wake up tomorrow happy and blessed. So many things about life are good. But what about those who don't? What about those right now? This very moment in parts of the world are being hunted down like dogs for their faith. Who are in horrible, horrible prisons being tortured for their faith. Are we more favored by God because of our comfort and our affluence? I would say to you, our comfort and our affluence may be not a blessing for our faith, but it may be the temptation of the enemy to cause us to love stuff more than we love the things of God. We see their stories. They show us what faith can accomplish. They show us what faith can endure. Third, they show us how faith continues. There's a confusing verse or two in this text that, that I never really stopped to think about it long and hard as I have in recent days. And I, it's just something I've read over. What in the world is verse 39 and 40? Say to us, and all these, though commended, though, though they were approved of through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Was God making promises to them and then not coming through? They didn't receive what was promised. They had faith. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fire of torture or the furnace. They had all these great miracles. They suffered great hardship. 
and they didn't get what was promised? Verse 40, since God had provided something better for who? Since God had provided something better for who? Us. Read me. Although it's not an individual truth, never is there such a thing in Scripture. It's always corporate. It's always the body of Christ. It's always the people of God. It's always the church of Christ. God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That word perfect means not perfection, but complete, complete. That although they experienced all these things by faith, that they are champions of faith, great examples of faith, that their final reward will never be complete until we share it with them. That their reward, that what God promised them, will not be experienced apart from us. That even though they are already in the presence of the Lord, they are not experiencing yet all of what God promised them. They're waiting on us to get there. You see, faith is not just a one-way street that stops with you. If it was not for faithful people before you, if it were not for a godly and faithful uh, grandfather and grandmother passing down faith to me, I probably would never have experienced it. I would have never known the grace of God, the goodness of God. Faith continues. And faith doesn't stop with you. Faith continues. That's why those of you who are parents, those of you that speak into the life of your grandchildren, that's why we have to continually say to them and live before them and show to them that a life of faith is worth making the hard choices for. That a life of faith and the life of the church and God's work in this world through his people is more important than work. It's more important that, than fun and games and sports on Sundays. It's more important than all those other things that we may go out and have more fun doing. That faithfulness and discipline and devotion to the things of God and loving God more than stuff is not just an option. It is an imperative if you want to experience the good things of God. Their faith, in other words, didn't stop with them. It's passed on from them down to you and me today. And we've got to live it and pass it on ourselves. The writer of Hebrews is saying here that the believers of the Old Testament 
will not be made perfect without the believers under the new covenant, the New Testament saints, and you and me. We will be made complete along with those Old Testament believers who gained approval. When you get to heaven, you will discover it is an amazing thing that you are standing there side by side, shoulder to shoulder, or maybe I should say kneeling there knee to knee with these great men and women of the faith because we are numbered with them as the people of God in the presence of God. And God will fulfill all of the promises that he has made. This is how Eugene Peterson paraphrases these verses in his paraphrase of the New Testament called the message. Listen, not one of these people, even though their lives of faith were exemplary, got their hands on what was promised. God had a better plan for us. That their faith and our faith would come together to make one completed whole. Their lives of faith not complete apart from ours. Is that not amazing? How can we just sit and hear those truths and read that truth and it just go past us like it's nothing. Beloved, it's everything. For those who are true people of faith today, you're numbered with these saints and their faith is not complete and your faith is not complete till our faith comes together with these saints in heaven. Well, very quickly, how are we to respond to these stories? That's question number three. How are we to respond? And we find the response actually over in chapter 12. Sometimes it's unfortunate that the Bible, I know the reason for dividing it up into chapters and verses, but it was not written that way. It was just one continuum uh, in a book or a letter like Hebrews. Uh, but translators break it down for us so that we can find certain passages and that kind of thing. But understand that verse tw- uh, 1 of chapter 12 continues this very same story, and it says this, Therefore, that ties it together. Therefore, this is the conclusion. This is the response. This is what we are to do. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of of witnesses. Now, I believe the writer is envisioning uh, maybe competitive games, maybe like a Roman Colosseum or a place where you have the races taking place, the events taking place. They had those Olympic games back in these days. Now, we don't know for sure. You find that theologians will disagree by what is meant by this so great a cloud of witnesses. Uh, The first response would be to say, well, it must be all of these saints mentioned, men and women of faith, from chapter 11, since we are surrounded by these. I don't know if they're looking on. I have an idea. 
in the very presence of the brilliance of Christ to turn away and to look at sorry, sinful humanity would be something they don't spend a lot of time doing. But it could reference them of sorts. Maybe the cloud of witnesses are our families and our friends, the world around us that's watching your life and mine. I'll tell you what I think about this. I think both of those could be true. I think both of those make an application and make some action points. But I believe heaven is not way out there somewhere. I believe heaven is right here. Now follow me, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that this earth is heaven. This earth, as wonderful of a place God created for us, is so defiled by sin, it is a hell hole in many ways. But I believe that the spiritual dimension of where Christ is, is right along beside us. I believe Jesus is not way out there somewhere. Your loved ones that you miss so dearly are not way off there somewhere. They are right along beside you. It's an, another dimension that we cannot hear, that we cannot know with our senses. I believe it explains how and why a number of times when Jesus was in a crowd that was rising up against him, he, he left through the crowd and they just couldn't see him. They couldn't find him. He stepped into that dimension and stepped back. I believe sometimes at the death of a saint, this world and the next one overlap so that a person, a dying saint in this life, sometimes begins to see what's on the other side. I believe that we are surrounded by the people of God that have gone on. I believe they are in the presence of Christ, enjoying all that that has to offer at this point. But they are waiting for us to get there to experience it all. I believe that these people who are all around us, they don't so much look in on us or see us, but they are so near so as sometimes to almost we sense their presence. It has rightly been said, this is a quote, the story of our lives is only finished in the lives of other people. Others we have loved and led, influenced and inspired. That's why we said faith is passed on. And that's why he said, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So what is our response? We are still the church militant. They are the church triumphant. We are there on the playing field, on the battlefield, so to speak, on the track. It is our race that is still being run. What are we to do? Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider, that means to think carefully, examine. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That no matter how tired you are, no matter how much you want to quit, no matter how hard the going is, look to Jesus. Remember what he endured. Don't grow weary or faint-hearted. Keep moving forward. What did he tell us to do? Three things. Lay aside whatever hinders your faith journey. Of course, that's sin. Lay aside sin. But every other weight. What are the weights? They are things of this life that are not necessarily sinful. They're just getting in the way. It may be your money. It may be your work. It may be your hobbies. It may be some of your friends. There's some things in life you need to put away that are not inherently wrong or sinful, but they're slowing you down. Run with endurance the race set before you. Endurance means to constantly persevere. The race set before you by God's providence, whether it be a life of great victories and powerful exhibitions of of God's faith, or whether it be a life of suffering, whichever. Keep looking to Jesus. Consider Him. Gaze on Him. View with undivided attention. Gaze at Jesus. Take your eyes off of other people and other things and off of yourself. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the founder and perfecter, the pioneer and the completer of our faith. Well, these testimonies of what faith did in others' lives are powerful illustrations of what God can do through faith. They convict us of our doubt and encourage us to trust God more. Father, show us how close to home we are. Show us how we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Father, help us to live more devoted than we've ever lived, to give more faithfully and more sacrificially than we've ever given. Father, help us to pursue you and your truth with renewed vigor and with renewed passion. May we be faithful to you and finish strong in this race of life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.